This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally, Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Let's go business storytellers. Hey, how's everyone doing? Today we want to talk about inaction. Kind of a um, foreign concept to me, quite frankly. It's very difficult for me just to sit here and not do anything. As you might know, let's do a podcast. Go live now. What are we waiting for? But some of you in corporate America are really stricken by this. Let's not do anything bug, right? Oh, let's have a strategy. You know how many strategies I've read that are just sitting on the shelf and they're wonderful, wonderfully written. Here's how we talk to our prospects. Here's how we create content, whatever it might be. And then we do nothing with it. We'll see if, you know, I'm looking at my guest backstage, if she's nodding at me or going, well, no, that's not, I've never heard of that before. So uh, we will find out what she has to say about that. Jen Allen uh, is the chief evangelist at Challenger. And I'm pretty sure I ran across her listening to another podcast. I don't remember which one uh, right this second, but inaction is such a disease. Why is that happening? And how do we move forward from it? Let's get her on the show here. Jen, nice to see you. Great to see you and excited to be here today. Thanks so much for having me. Perfect fist bump to get the show going. That's always half the <laughs> battle. Um, not to smack the camera. That's always my <laughs> Um So tell me about, I, I mean, I'm not wrong, right? When, when it comes to some of these uh, inaction illnesses going around, but, but why is that happening? Yeah, you're absolutely not wrong. I was vigorously nodding as you were opening this up. And it's it's fascinating, right? If you think back to anyone that was um, sort of in business in 08, 09 and can recall that nightmare of a time, um, it's actually far less to do with where the market is in terms of the economy and actually far more to do with the uncertainty that presents anytime there's a question mark around that. Right. So when there's a question mark around, is the economy going up or down? Are we going to have continued layoffs? What tends to happen is that we as humans want to preserve same because same is safe. Now, the problem with that is oftentimes we as customers, as buyers, even in our own personal life, will knowingly make a wrong or bad decision, but continue to do so because it's the devil we know. However, when we are, so I sell to salespeople. I've been in sales for the last 17 years. When we are wired to sell, we are trying to convince someone why change is better. But what we fail to appreciate a lot of times is in many cases, good is good enough. So better rarely wins about good enough. So inaction is typically a result of a fear of uncertainty, a fear of change. And that presents itself, especially in markets like this. Yeah, I mean, I see it all the time. And I'm just thinking about when, when when you talk about people want to keep the status quo, I don't think that's the term you use necessarily, but that's right. I mean, I was speaking at a conference actually a few years ago and somebody put the podium in the middle of the stage. And when I got up there, I said, who who in the world put this podium up here? And why is this still sitting here? Three keynotes down the, you know, because it's like the status quo. Once it's there, it's there. We don't want to move things around. But what if we, do we have to think about 
think about it like change. So I'll just, I, I, when you were talking about that, I'm mm-hmm. thinking, okay, my career has focused around how do I tell better stories? But how I do that for companies is vastly different today than it was 15 years ago, right? We didn't have live streams. We didn't have automation. Like if we send an email, we actually literally had to send the email manually, you know? So why would it be easier if we don't think about it as change and just how do we make it easier? Yeah, I think effort, to your point, is a really big part of this, right? Part of what people despise about change is not only the uncertainty, but the effort that goes with it, right? So let's say I'm a buyer and I'm going to buy something. And we hear this all the time. Like I can look at a solution and say, man, that is a snazzy solution. That is so much better than what we're doing today. I believe in it. I see value in it. That company is a company that I think gets it. But there's this weird thing that happens that starts to creep up where all of a sudden I, as a buyer, start thinking, what if something goes wrong, right? What if I move off us, us off of what we've always done onto this new solution or new approach? And then all of a sudden someone throws their hands up and is like, you know what? I really like this thing about the old way so much better. Or what if something goes wrong? This is all risk to political capital. And so part of our job when we are storytelling in any sort of business environment, especially in sales, is to help mitigate the associated risk and uncertainty and fear that goes along with change. How we do not do that is by talking about how great things are. How we do do that is by being upfront and being a true partner to our customers and our partners and expressing, here are all the things that we should be mindful of may go off the rails. Because when we put that out on the table, one, it's not expected by buyers. They expect us to tell the rosy story. But two, it allows us to have a meaningful conversation so that fear like, you know, unnecessary fear doesn't prevail over clearer minds. Um, So I think that's a big thing that candidly I got wrong a lot is I would always just hope to sweep it to the side, but learning to have a true meaningful conversation around X, Y, and Z are usually the things that freak out buyers from making this decision. Very, very interesting. And trying to figure out what those things are, I guess, certainly makes, uh, makes a big difference. But how do you find that out? I mean, because, you know, Sales is very different today than it was 15 years ago, right? I mean, some of the things sold themselves and there's only two options and there's only two vendors. I mean, I'm thinking about publishing, right? I mean, in publishing, salespeople used to go to somebody and and they would buy no matter what because that's what they've done and that's kind of what they do and they have the budget and, you know, there you go. Let's go have a beer. We're done. Um, But how do you really figure out what those concerns are? I mean, I'm thinking about, Sometimes when I have salespeople call me or really anybody and they want, I mean, it's like a therapy session sometimes, right? <laughs> like, what, are, what are your problems? And I'm like, well, where do you want to start? And uh, you, you know what I mean? Um, so how do you build that trust, whether it's on the content side or the sales side or, or the, you know, the company level? How do, you, uh, how do you get there? How do you figure that out in a meaningful way? Love this question. And I think there's a lot of things that have made selling harder over the last 20 years. But one thing that is incredibly easier is just forming a point of view or perspective prior to making that call, right? So as an example, if I was selling Challenger to sales leaders 15 years ago, I would have to, one, hope that my territory was primarily public companies. I would have to sift through 10Ks and annual reports and hope to find goodness in there. And it's not to say that that is not a worthwhile strategy. We can all still do that. 
But the problem with that is there's a, a boatload of companies that are not public, who don't publicize their earnings and their risks and their you know strategies and things like that. So that was always the tricky part. Now, fast forward to today, one of the ways that I think is really under leveraged is recognizing that the fact that most many, I'll say many company leaders are out there publicly talking about how their organizations are trying to grow and trying to win. And so if you do something as simple as Google the CEO's name plus podcast or CEO's name plus interview, the amount of information and insight that pops up in a simple Google search is stuff that we just didn't have before. So my advice and my tactic that I recommend or to sellers and to anyone trying to make a more informed conversation and build that credibility and trust is to use those resources to understand what is the company's A state, so that's their current state, what is it that the company's B state is, where are they trying to get to, and what does it seem like the, the thinking, the conventional thinking is of how they get from A to B based on how they talk about their company's growth strategy, what they're trying to pursue. And then within that A to B, where is their conventional wisdom, a belief system, a piece of information that seems to be informing them to take that path from A to B, but actually their path looks like this, right? So we're looking for a flawed assumption, a flawed belief system that we can then go and disrupt. So you take that and what that allows you to do is enter into a conversation and not show up and say, hey, I'm Jen from ABC Company and this is why we're the world's leading provider of who cares, but rather go in and say, listen, I saw your CEO, Joe, the other day talking about how you just made a few acquisitions in pursuit of getting into this AI space. Now, out of curiosity, one of the things that a lot of sales organizations see is like when you move from selling a physical product to a service or a software or an AI product, there's some complexities there that make it much harder for a, for a seller to sell a non-physical product. Out of curiosity, are you bumping into that at all? I'd love to compare your observations versus mine. Right. So it is not a, a thesis or a dissertation, right? It is typically 15 minutes of, of reading transcripts from interviews and podcasts and things like that. And then going in with a perspective. So to your point, it is not, hey, open up to me, stranger. Tell me all your problems and needs, which is reality, just really a lot of work for the buyer. Open up to me, therapies with the sales team. <laughs> and, you, you, you know, um, a lot of these tips really, I mean, they can be used for the sales team. They can be used on the content team. Uh, they can be used really, you know, for for paid digital, really anywhere, because if you don't understand what your your customer is actually facing, what their, what their perceived problems are, and then also um, that it's not a linear process. I think a lot of people struggle with that, right? It's very, uh, you know, I, I just rather go straight ahead. Maybe that's because of the the way our roads are constructed in the United States, other than Boston. Uh, <laughs> now you talk of right because that's because of the cows. I was just something. there yesterday, so timely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. But so you talk about thirty eight percent of B two B sales conversations actually end in no decision. Which is which is crazy from both ends of the conversation because so if I'm thinking about you know I've been in, on plenty buying committees let's call them that for lack of a better term and if I'm thinking that one out of those three will be a complete waste of my time not because we decided that's not the right tool or we decided that is the right tool but because we decided that we're not going to do anything what a waste of time so why is that happening? Is it really just happening because we're not telling the right story? Is it happening because of internal politics? Is it happening because all of the above or something else? This is such a great question. 
And I love to relate it to our personal lives, right? Think about the last time you tried to get 10 people to go to a restaurant and make a decision on which restaurant to go to. That in and of itself, I don't know about your friends, but with my friends, it's like a text chain of 100 texts. And then it ends up like, let's just switch the date because now somebody has something come up, right? And so it's, it's hard to make a decision on a restaurant or a pizza topping or things that are so insignificant. Now you take that into a B2B environment, and the reality is, is we've tracked this on average, right? There will be more, there will be less, but on average in a B2B sales process, the number of stakeholders on the customer side that were directly or indirectly involved has gone up in 2015 from an average of 5.4 to just five years later in 2020, an average of 11.2. That is explosive, right? You're talking about truly herding cats. And the added complexity with COVID is that now many of these people are not in the same physical setting. They are jumping from call to call. And so the idea or the notion of doing anything is really, really difficult because you face this inertia from 10, 11 people who in many cases don't work together on a regular basis, having different perspectives on the problem, how important the problem is to solve, what the solution should be, and who they should go for it. So in reality, I think what we're finding is a lot of the 38% losses aren't coming at late stage, hey, we looked at these three vendors and then we just decided to do nothing. It's actually happening early stage where the, the buying group just comes together and says, you know what? Forget it. This is so much extra work as to what's already on my plate. Let's just keep doing what we're doing because we can live with it. Right. And so you see this evolution of people who intentionally want to change just going back and settling for good enough. Well, what's interesting about that, I was uh, working with a team once and they had a big, big project coming down the pike and it was like last minute. And, and I know it's not, it wasn't a marketing emergency necessarily, but it was a big project. And I'm like, I literally can't deal with this unless I move these other things, you know? So I think you have to be very, very deliberate actually moving things along that you're not going to focus on because you literally have to spend the next two days reading this document, analyzing it. And maybe I've been at fault myself because I remember a project where I didn't really care which way we we're going to go. And one person who was apparently opposed to the change put together this long, long spreadsheet and I barely read it. Um, because I'm like, I don't really care what's in there. I mean, I skimmed it. So maybe it was my fault or maybe it was the other people who felt they had to respond to the spreadsheet. Um, Jen, when Scott Brinker was on the show, he talked about the real political dangers when you buy a big, big system. So for example, I sign up for Buffer for a company, right? I mean, the political lash, you know, whatever political danger is really low, right? Because it's a low mm -hmm. cost. It's easy to implement. If we don't like it, whatever, we'll just change it. We might even eat the cost for a year, right? Uh, but if I'm implementing a huge system, um, the political danger is really much higher, especially if I'm in a toxic culture. Uh, how do we, how do we maneuver those things? Oh, this is, the reality of selling today, and I think what we've even observed is the price point of what we consider significant is dropping, right? Like before, it'd be like, oh, if you buy a CRM solution, there's a ton of political capital at risk. And now I think even smaller solution sizes, just as people restrain capital expenditures, are being viewed that way. So one of the fascinating things is when you look at a conversation between a business and a potential customer, one of the things that we have just been wired to do, this is candidly how I grew up selling back in 04 when I started, was you are teaching them why your solution is better, 
right? If you look on any company website, show me one that does not have the word better or faster or some ER ending word plastered all over it. And the, the trouble with better, as we talked about before, is in many cases, good is good enough. So if I think, let's say, for example, I, I went through this experience, um, I came across the company Chili Piper. And for those that don't know Chili Piper, they have um, a way for a prospect who's interested in your service on your website to just book immediately with the AE calendar. Now, I saw that. I thought, man, this is awesome. It's going to slow the lag of getting back to prospects. We know that's really important. We know as a company that new logo acquisition is really, really important. So clearly this is a no-brainer, right? But for me to actually push that through the organization required that I get legal involved, finance involved, IT involved, sales involved, marketing involved. And so it ended up being for a really, really low price point, all of this, this like chaos and organization and, and hurting cats of people. Now, in my circumstance, I was so passionate about the size of the problem that this solution solved. I was willing to put political capital at risk because I was willing to tie it to this initiative. But that's because the size of the problem that we had, to me, was so massive, it was worth worth going all in. Now, if Chili Piper had just called and said, hey, we've got a faster way for people to book meetings, and it's really cool, and here's all the features and benefits, I never would have been as activated by that. And I probably wouldn't have gone through the process because it was a lot of extra work. So it's a long way of saying when we are positioning our solutions and our services, we actually have to be mindful not to lead with that. And rather, what's really going to activate an executive stakeholder is by giving them insight on how big an underappreciated problem is and showing them how they become the hero, not us by the solution, but them by being the person that raises this and, and relieves this pressure, this tension, this risk inside the business. So our message should actually be far more about helping customers learn about themselves as opposed to helping customers learn about our solution. Well, and making things easier. And when, and when you were just mentioning that, uh, it, you know, the one thing I was thinking of the, all of our emails, Jen, to this point, except my first outreach to you has been automated, Right. Um, in one week, in, in, in one day, I'm going to start promoting the show. If you can't make the date, let me know right now. Please use the link to reschedule. I hope to see you, though. Day out. Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. If you don't have the link, let me know. 90 minutes after the show, the show is already live. Here's where it is. Here's how it's going to go from here. That's the last email. You don't have to decline the meeting to get out of any other emails. But my point is, um, that's a that that technology solution has made my life so much easier, right? Um, but it also creates, I need a different skill set to actually think about what email should go when, what makes sense, what's just annoying, right? But overall, it's made my life easier. But how do you get people, whether it's from content, I mean, you can write you know, about this stuff until you're blue in the face, right? And people hopefully will see it. But how do you get people to understand that it can actually make their lives easier? And I know it's hard because when I was in journalism, I was including myself. Everybody is fighting changes. You want me to write in a box? A computer is now rating my <laughs> writing, which has been one. I mean, for real, right? But today, I couldn't live without Grammarly. I think Grammarly, I'm like, whatever. I'm not going to learn where to put commas correctly. <laughs> Grammarly is doing it for me. So it's made my life easier, right? Yes. No, this is, it, it's so true. I think what's fascinating though, is the story you just told is what I don't see enough companies telling, right? Instead of telling the story of how much better life is, it's intensifying the pain of how insane it is 
to keep operating where you would in your instance, right? Like just you manually spent sending emails. So storytelling is a, obviously we're on the business storytelling show. It's a significant part about it, but it's storytelling on the problem. Sometimes we as humans make these stupid, oftentimes we make these stupid, stupid decisions until we hold a mirror up to our face and recognize what is the cost of our action or our inaction, right? What is the cost of continuing to do things the way we are? So in that instance, right, if I'm a sales rep for that organization, I'm actually playing out what is that manual process look like, right? What is the frustration? What is the feeling? What is the emotions? And then I'm doing something which most prospects are not doing, which is I'm actually sizing it. So, all right, Christoph, you know, every month you're doing X number of podcasts, you have X number of guests, which means there are five emails in a series. It takes you five minutes to write each of those emails. So basically, Christoph, every month you light on fire four to five hours doing something that could be offset manually. And then that's when you transition into, but here's why I know you're going to be skeptical. Like, is the quality going to be high enough? And you're preempting the objection because to your point, whoever sold that to you has heard that objection before. It's just sometimes as sellers, we wait until we hear it because we hope we can eat by without it. But I think that's the benefit of authenticity. You're taking a buyer down this path and you're thinking just like they do. So they are more likely to pull you in. And that's the value or the beauty of having a live person behind that message instead of just static content. And I'm trying to remember the number that Marcus Sheridan quoted when he was on the show. Uh, he was talking about how salespeople should just create videos answering some of the most common questions, because why do you have to repeat them over and over? And I want to say, he said, maybe 80% of what salespeople hear, they've heard, you know, a gazillion times that I don't, <laughs> that's not the exact number, obviously, but um, <laughs> so, so why not have some content that people you can send them or you can kind of drip out to them, you know, one by one. I'm personally a big fan of getting snippets of information, right? So if somebody sends me a long email, I actually got one the other day, must have been 2,000 words of stuff. I'm sure it's good stuff, but I don't have time to read a 2,000-word email. But I might have an, I might have time to read 20 emails of 100 words that are yeah. well-timed, right? So I don't know why people don't uh, think about that. I mean, I'll tell you why they don't, because they go into an organization, they get training on their product and their solution, and then they go regurgitate everything they learn, right? Because that's what they think wins. But you're exactly right. Like, we live in a TikTok 15 second, 30 second culture. And that's the appetite that our readers, our buyers, the consumers of information have. And I think when we relieve ourselves from that tendency to try to write novels, like the belief system that's behind that is they're going to, the prospect is going to open up that email and be like, man, Jen is so smart and educated about this. When in reality, what you said is what happens. They're like, I don't have time to read this. This person clearly doesn't understand what I'm up against. No, and my favorite one, and then I'll let you talk about Challenger, what that is and, and 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 who do you work with and whatnot, is the people that email me four times, have you read my email below? <laughs> and then the next thing is, have you read my email below? And I'm like, are you serious? Like, I literally have to go back down and read the email. I didn't read the first four times. So uh, crazy stuff, but certainly people can learn and we can always learn how to tell stories better and how to uh, how to display them better and how to present them better, no doubt. Um, Challenger Inc., tell us about that. You're the chief evangelist there. Uh, who do you work with? Uh, you know, Who should reach out? And you, ha you have a podcast, of course, too. Yeah, so Challenger Inc. is the company behind the books, the Challenger Sale, the Challenger Customer, and Effortless Experience. So lots of people know about the, the Challenger Sales methodology. Not a lot of people know that Challenger Inc. is an organization that works with commercial teams to help them implement that Challenger thinking, that Challenger mindset, 
into the minds of their sellers, their marketers, so that you have a cohesive way of thinking about how do we disrupt status quo with your customers. Um, so we typically work with sales organizations, big and small, all different stages of growth, um, but particularly companies that say, hey, we lose a lot to no decision. We can't just keep selling our solution and the benefits of it. We have to have a different talk track. So that's who we work with. And then, yes, I host our weekly Winning the Challenger Sale podcast, where I bring in guests who think and show up like challengers to share how they execute on challenger thinking in the real world. Fantastic. Very interesting. And of course, you mentioned uh, marketing and sales. So my final thought always is work with marketing. Don't just use them as let me I need a prettied up PowerPoint. Work with a proactive marketing team, proactive content strategy team. Uh, there was a show the other day on Real Talk, the customer insights show, which I produce, where they talked about proactive research. Uh, and, and the proactive content, proactive marketing is very similar, right? You actually get ahead of things, you create things, and you are not just a order shop, so to speak. What was the website yeah. for Challenger, Jen? It's challengerinc.com. Challengerinc.com. Thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your insights. Very enlightening. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best stories win. Mm-hmm.